You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Well, good morning. I'm Ron Jackson, one of your pastors here. I get to preach. And because today I'm having a bit of a problem with my balance, I'm going to be in my chair to preach to you. This is my chair. It says lazy boy on the back. (laughs) This is also the chair I do therapy in, so welcome. (laughs) Therapy is, uh, group therapy is much cheaper than uh, individual therapy. So what did you name your first dog and why did you name him that? But thanks for indulging me sitting down. Uh, Can we have a little fire right here, please? It'd be nice, a little fireside chat and all that. Well, I must admit, when I was asked to preach on uh, eat food a few months, a few weeks ago, I really resented that. I thought it was typecasting or something. I mean, I look like I'm living the good life. And I didn't really like that. So I said to Mike and the preaching team, I go, I'm not preaching on food. They said, well, yes, you are. It works into the schedule. And I go, you didn't hear me. I'm not preaching on food. There was a silence. And I said, tell you what, I want to preach on sex. And Mike says, you're not preaching on sex. <laughs> and so finally I realized I had made my point. So I said, okay, I'll preach on food. But I'm not going to talk about diet. Fortunately, today's passage we're going to cover has nothing to do with diet. Everything to do with God's provision and power in our lives. In our day today, we are truly blessed with food. It is everywhere. And we love it. We eat better than most kings in the ancient world ever ate. We have more variety of food. We can spend two weeks eating through Southeast Asia within five miles of our homes with the variety of foods that we have. Week after week and year after year, we can go back to our supermarkets and they never empty out. They always restock the shelves. It's a wonderful thing. We are freed in many ways from the fear of famine that has always been a part of this world for so long. We can run from meal to meal, go through drive throughs If we pause to say grace, it tends sometimes to be a perfunctory or canned little prayer. We never stop to think that God did provide all this. Or if God didn't, then we did. We have lost our appetite for any thought of what it means to be hungry or thirsty. And in some ways that's okay, but I want to re-have us think about what does it mean to hunger and thirst? The Bible encourages us all to say we must hunger and thirst after righteousness. How do we develop that kind of an appetite? We, in every sense of the word, live in the good life. We don't need to feel ashamed. God made you be born in the breadbasket of the world. We have huge varieties and wonderful things to enjoy. But I want us to push back from that table of plenty today and think about something else. Jesus provides what we really need for our life. And sometimes all the things of this world that distract us, our budgets, our cars, 
the difficulties that we look at and the things we try to do, including food, can get in the way of our walk with God. Not because we eat too much, but because we don't eat it in the presence of God. Would you join me in prayer? Precious Father, today as we look at this concept of prayer, of food and all, that you would allow us to see how we fit into all this. You've made us, and you made us hungry. And hungry, Father, for the right things, but sometimes, Lord, hungry for the wrong things as well. We would ask, give us an appetite for you. Give us a hunger and a desire to do what you would have us to do, that we might love you all the more and recognize how hard you pursue us, how much you love us, and how deeply you want to be in fellowship with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be looking at John chapter 6 today, and if you have your Bibles with you, uh, it's the fourth book in the New Testament, the book of John, turn to chapter 6. We're going to spend all our time there, no real bouncing around. I am not Mike. Um, Mike thinks you should preach from the whole Bible. I say one chapter at a time is good enough for me. So we're going to stay in John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you left it at home, okay, we won't embarrass you, but raise your hand, stand up. No, uh, we have ushers that will pass the Bible out too if you want to follow along, uh, if you need to, and it'd be a good thing to do that today. So let us know you need a Bible. And if you would like your own Bible, let's say you don't have one. You were robbed last night and somebody took your Bible. We'll give you a new one. The only stipulation is we want you to, you to read it. It's for you. It's not for graduation. Uh, it's for you. Put your name in it. And then you can follow along and bring it with you each week. So, John chapter 6 gives us a wonderful story about the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is such a common story, we think we know it all. And I just want to point out some things to you that I think maybe we miss a little bit at that time. John, in writing his gospel, you know, I kind of like this idea, it's kind of spinning around, you know. Okay, you guys are moving a lot, you know, sit still, please. No, okay, it's me. Um, the, the idea here is, in John chapter 6, John has a purpose in mind of what he wants to get to. So as we get to this chapter here, we find that it says, after this, Jesus went to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Now Galilee is a pretty big lake, really. You can see across to the other side, uh, although you just really couldn't swim it. It's really too big, so they would go on boats across it, but it's a pretty big sea. Jesus is in Jerusalem in chapter 5. In that point, he actually heals a man who's crippled by one of the pools in Jerusalem, but Jesus does it on the wrong day. He does it on a Sabbath day, and he gets in trouble. They get so upset he would heal somebody on the Sabbath day, overlooking the joy of this man's healing. Not only that, Jesus made a mistake too. You know what the mistake was? When this guy gets healed, and they ask him, who healed you? He says, I don't know. Now, if this were Ron Jackson, he'd have four or five of my cards in his pocket that said, Ron Jackson, therapist. Pass them out to your friends. But Jesus didn't even give his name. He healed the man. People saw what he had done, and they got upset with him. So Jesus now is tired of being in Jerusalem. The Passover is coming. He'll be back in a few days to the, for the Passover. 
but right now he just he wants to get out of town to some open spaces. And as he goes to this open space, there's a small, wee little crowd that follows him. 5,000. That's 5,000 men. Now in those days, I don't mean to be too sexist here, they would really only count men because that's just the way they, that was the culture of the day. If you saw a man, you always assumed there was a wife and children. So that's why they only count the men. They wouldn't say, gee, I think there's 9,422. They'd say, 5,000 men, you do the math. And they would do the math. So 5,000 people are out here in this wilderness, and Jesus is teaching them. And I think it's coming now down to evening. A lot of people like to call this the lunch. I kind of like think this is kind of like an early supper, maybe. So as they're sitting there uh, talking with Jesus and all, he sits them down and he says to one of his disciples, Philip, now, wouldn't it be great to be a disciple of Christ, have your name in the Bible? I love it. I've looked, mine's not there, mine's on the front of my Bible, but it's not in my Bible. But Philip's name is. And so Jesus says to Philip as you're sitting down, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And right away, Philip becomes Philip, which is a lot like me. He kind of goes, are you kidding me? It would take two months worth of wages. We don't have that kind of money. We passed two bakeries. You never said a thing about it. Now we're out here with 5,000 plus people. And you say, how are we going to feed him? Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the story I want to attach to my name. Philip, the whiner. But that's what happened to Philip. I'm sure he redeems himself later on. But, you know, right now it's kind of like Philip... That's what John's going to put in his gospel. Oh, John, let's rewrite that story. We can't. That's what it is. But around Jesus, as they're sitting down, there's another disciple whom we've come to love, and his name is Andrew. Andrew is one of those disciples we all want to have as a buddy. He welcomes people. I think Andrew has this perpetual smile on his face. He's welcoming, he's kind. And as they're sitting down for this meal... Jesus is, you know, the little, the little boy over here, she say, how are we going to feed this people? And a little boy comes along and says, here, give this to Jesus. And there's five barley loaves and two fish. And Andrew says, be happy to young man. And presents it to Christ. Now, what are barley loaves? They're not cupcakes. To make food in, in the Old Testament or in the time of Jesus was a very time-consuming process. Most archaeologists say it probably took the average Jewish woman four to five hours per meal. Ladies, you're blessed. And men, you better start saying thank you if you want to eat a good meal again. Four to five hours. The Jewish woman would wake up early in the morning before the sun rise to gather the water, to start to get the fire going in the little fire pit. They'd have a fire pit with bricks in a kind of in a circle, about four, maybe three or four feet long. Or they'd have a, a, a vessel with the, with the bottom they would put over the fire. In other words, they'd get something hot. They didn't have ovens in those days. Ovens were not invented until about uh, 200 years later when the bread could really rise. So the wife would take this barley uh, wheat and barley wheat uh, is a very fast-producing wheat. It grows early in the spring. It's the first wheat of the season. It's red. It's rough. It's hardy. And, but you really got to work hard to break off its outer shell to get to the soft inner wheat. So the wife would be working hard to break all this up, 
on a rolling pin probably. Then she'd throw it in the air in a basket or in a, in a cloth. The wind would blow away the shaft and, and, and left in that was the wheat. After that was done for maybe close to 45 minutes to an hour, she then would spend time picking out the pieces that didn't make it. Because you don't want popcorn kernels stuck in your teeth. So she'd pull this out. She adds water to it and olive oil, makes it into a ball, and then squishes it out on the, on the, on the outline of the, of the oven and the, the stove in the oven uh, in the ground. The olive oil keep it from burning, but she'd make it as flat as she could with a little bit of leaven in there, and then she'd flip it over and cook the other side and all. That's what a barley loaf was. It looked more like a pancake than we would think of a loaf of bread. It didn't rise that way. Now, when we do communion, we use the same kind of stuff, except we don't put leaven in it, so it's like a cracker. That cracker cooks fast. That's that kind of the idea of hurry up, get out of, get out of Egypt. But the, the bread that they had every day was that barley loaf. This boy had left his family well prepared. Five pancakes and two fish. This kid knew he was going on an adventure. So he's part of this group. And Jesus takes this wonderful gift from this child, blesses it. I'd love to have heard that prayer. God just says, thank you for this. And proceeds to multiply the bread and the fish, and all eight, maybe 10,000 people are fed, not just, oh, thanks, I'm, I'm okay, but in, the Bible says, until they were all full. Everyone was full. They couldn't take another bite, no more fish, no more bread. They were done. Jesus had met all of their needs to the maximum. A whole crowd had been fed by this. And we're not done yet. Jesus says to his disciples, go and gather up all the leftovers because we don't want to be wasteful. So the disciples go out with baskets. and There have to be 12 of them. They go out and they gather up all the food. And then they find that they have 12 basketfuls of barley bread. What do they do with these baskets? I have no idea. I was hoping maybe you can get an idea. Okay. I think what they did, because Jesus was not one to waste an opportunity or to waste food. But in those days, the beautiful people, the healthy people, the ones that could walk and talk and look nice and were clean, they're the ones who got to be part of a crowd. If you looked different, if you smelled really different, if you had a disease or a problem, you were always on the outskirts. You can never be in the center of the crowd. And I believe the disciples spent their time putting those baskets out on the perimeter for all those people that didn't get a chance to get the the full meal. He had fed all these people. Now, how long do you think it takes to feed about 8,000 people? Have you been to Dodger Stadium during the seventh inning? I don't know about you, but it's like losing an inning of baseball because by the time you get your Dodger dog and your, your chips and your cheese sauce, get back to the theater. What do you mean they scored two runs? It's a crowd. It's hard. Yeah, I think it took them a long time simply to distribute this food out there. And the disciples are seeing this miracle moment by moment by moment as the food multiplies and gets out and all these people are taken care of. All of them wonderfully. Then they gather the scraps. Then they distribute the scraps somehow, but we don't know exactly what he does with them. 
At this point, Jesus is ready to go off and talk to his heavenly father. He goes further up into the hills. The disciples, you know, get together and decide, I'm pooped. What do you want to do? I don't know. Let's go home. So they decide to get back in their fishing boat, which is on that side of the lake, to go to Capernaum, which is only about seven miles away. So they get in their fishing boat to go back to Capernaum, where Peter has a house and some of the disciples have a house. And notice what John does here. Remember the story about Jesus walking in the water and, you know, Peter getting out of the boat and the people are afraid. It's just a wonderful story. But John gives it four verses, or five verses. John says, they got in the boat, there was a storm, Jesus walked in the water, Jesus got in the boat, they got to the other side, we're done. John doesn't care about that story as much. He wants them back in Capernaum because something's about to happen there that's the point of what I want to say today. So they get back to Capernaum, and when the people get up the next day, they, they saw the disciples leave, they never saw Jesus leave, and he walked on the water, but they were on the wrong side of the lake. They wanted to get back to be with Jesus. So the Bible says they went down to the shore and got in boats. How many boats does it take for 8,000 people to cross the Sea of Tiberias? Even if you put 20 in a boat. First one with the calculation, let me know. You'll get a free Bible at the end and outside. Um, can you imagine if you're in Capernaum and you're fishing, you and your brother in a boat, you look off across the Sea of Tiberias, here comes an armada. We thought Normandy was a big invasion. I think Capernaum felt terrified and inundated that all these fishing vessels were coming to them with all these people getting on shore, getting out, trying to find Jesus. And they find Jesus in the little synagogue there in Capernaum and he continues to teach. And as he gets, and as he starts teaching, the people in the, this crowd now just overwhelmed the small village of all these people there. They, they start saying, it's like, Jesus, how'd you get here? Jesus never answers them. It's kind of like one of those throwaway questions. Who cares? I'm here. And, they, and Jesus, but Jesus discerns what's really going on with them. Why they really came across the lake. They think they're following the prophet, a great man who might do some more miracles. But Jesus says, you've come for one reason and one reason only. You want me to feed you again. Oh, moi? No, I don't want to be fed again. I want another miracle. And they said to Jesus, remember in the, in the wilderness when uh, you know, uh, Moses fed us with bread for those 40 years? Now, Jesus corrects their thinking. That story had happened, but notice what they said. What Moses had fed us for 40 years, Jesus says he did not. Your heavenly Father provided the manna. It came down from heaven. Moses didn't make that bread. Your heavenly Father made the bread. So you want something to eat? You want something to sustain you? And Jesus makes a remarkable statement that maybe in our English language, because we don't have a lot of a Jewish practice, understand sometimes. Jesus goes, I am the bread of life. No Jew would have ever said that. Because 
in the Old Testament, when Moses was going to go and free the Jews from the Egyptians, he was concerned about, who do I say sent me? Who, who are you? What's your name? And God said to Moses, tell them I am. Moses knew that's all he had to say. The great I am sent me. And now here is Jesus in a synagogue, and he turns to the people and says, I am. There was no doubt in the people's eyes of who Jesus was just saying he was. In fact, they begin griping about it. You're not the great I am. I know your father. I know your mother. I know your brothers. You're not the great I am. And Jesus says, all you want is more miracles. There is a miracle coming. If you want to live forever, eat my flesh, drink my blood. He is insulting these people. If you read the rest of this chapter, it's a story, a pre-story of communion, and it's not a pretty one. It's really kind of icky. He's saying we need to drink his blood. Now again, in Jewish culture, they believed life was in the blood. If somebody was bleeding, you had to stop the bleeding because that was God coming out of them. Life was in the blood. That's why the Jews were so kosher or clean about their animals. They would slaughter them by the way they would pray for them. They would slaughter them and make sure all the blood drained out of the animal before they would butcher it. You could not go to Israel and get a good juicy steak. You could get a good steak, but it wouldn't be bloody. The Jews felt that was anathema. It was wrong. It was hideous. It was almost cannibalistic. You didn't drink the blood. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, and you will drink my blood. This saying became so hard that the 5,000 began to say, I can't follow this anymore. I don't know what this is all about. And they just began to wander away. And I don't know how long it took for that day as 8,000 people began to walk away from Christ. They thought themselves disciples. They thought they had found the Messiah. They thought he was the great prophet. But after this saying of eat my flesh and drink my blood, they said, I'm having nothing of this. The great Messiah is not a sacrifice. They felt he was to be a king. And John would say in Revelation, oh, he will be. He will be the great king. He will be the great judge. But first, he is the Lamb of God. This great I am statement is the first of a number that John puts in his gospel. And I believe all these I am statements are meant to make God more real to us. So often we say it's so hard to get to know God. Listen to how God describes himself to you. God is pursuing you. He's trying to put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you and for me. He says, I am the bread of life. It's an everyday experience, bread. 
I am the light of the world. When we wake up in the morning and there is light, Jesus, that's what I'm like. I illumine the world. I am the gate. I am the way in. I am the good shepherd. Now, we don't see shepherds much today, but if you can imagine a good shepherd who takes care, that's God's image for us. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All these I am's in the gospel that John are meant to say, I'm here with you. I'm in the world with you. I want to be in relationship with you. This great gift. And Matthew records a prayer that you and I probably learned as little kids. Know well, it's called the Lord's Prayer. In one of the verses of that prayer, it says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is saying, take me in every day like you take in bread. 70% of a diet in Jesus' time was bread. It might have been the barley bread early in the season or maybe the softer bread later on in the season, but it was bread. That's what the majority of the food was. Bread was used for everything. You used to sop up gravy. You would chop it up and make it into like an oatmeal type of a thing. Uh, bread was the, was the staple of life. Made by hand. Cooked every day. Consumed every day. And I think that's what God calls us to do with our walk with him. We can't buy a whole lot of Jesus and put him on the shelf. We have to consume it on a daily basis on a regular basis. Give us this day our daily bread. You and I truly are living the good life. But we need to recognize that good life often takes us off target, often has us fill ourselves with sugar and candy versus the bread of life. And we need to work at changing that. My challenge to you is this. How many times a day do you eat? Okay, no hands. Some of you are think, starting to count up past four. Okay. At least three. Some of us have snacks. To me, a staple of life is popcorn. Because my wife calls it popcorn soup. Because I don't think you should have popcorn without a full stick of butter in it. And then you want to be able to see the popcorn so you put salt on top so it reflects the light. Yes, that is why I am what I am. <laughs> Think about the things we eat and enjoy. My challenge to you is this. Make every meal a meal with Christ. Make every opportunity when you sit down to prepare a meal, to consume it, to enjoy it, to clean up after it, make it a time of one grace and thanksgiving. Stop thanking Stater Brothers for your food. Thank the Lord. He provided the land the farmer plowed and worked at, and we have an amazing system of getting food to the market. We are a blessed people. But sometimes that convenience takes away the fact of, given a few days, we might be looking around for more food if those trucks stop rolling. Now, if you shop at Costco, you probably got a couple of months. You know, I don't know how you can buy bacon at Costco. You don't just sell one and get to buy four. 
You've always got something ready to go there. You know, Costco is a big food store. But think about it. Every meal you take is an opportunity to come closer to God. I would encourage you to think about the time you would spend. The Jewish moms spend about four hours every meal. You probably spend at least an hour. And I'd encourage you, what can you do at breakfast time to make it a more, a more spiritual time for you? Listen to, God, listen to praise music. Pray and thank God. Make your grace much more meaningful. What about lunchtime? You know, so often we're busy kind of running through the fast food places and racing around. Think about what could you do different? You know, everybody says that uh, cell phones are the most dangerous thing now for people driving. To me, it's a burrito in your lap when you're driving. What do you do when that burrito falls into your lap? I don't know about you, but my hands come off the wheel and I'm trying to get it off my pants and off my seat. The guy next to me figures, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill him. Take the time to use the meal as a time to reconnect with God. He's not hard to find. He wants to be there. A lot of sociology and psychology as they look at families and kind of figure out what's going on with families, what makes a strong family or a weak family. One of the common denominators of a strong family, not a perfect family, a strong family, is having an evening meal together. How many of you have a pristine dining room table? Got to get some marks on that thing. Got to have some rings from the glasses of milk and spilt coffee and gravy. You need to spend time as a family around a meal. Make it a priority. Your kids want to talk with you. I know you're saying they have nothing important to say. Well, that's true. But they still want to talk. And you get a chance to listen and hear about what's going on in their life because they feel you don't listen, but the person on Facebook does. They can put their feelings out there. They can reach out beyond their home because in their home they feel cut off. We're all busy. That's the whole point of the Living a Life series. Say, what are you busy doing? Cut back. Add something different. You just can't stop. You have to put a replacement behavior in its place. And I'm saying, dedicate yourself to having more evening meals together as a family. Make the kids come. Tell them, this is not a short order restaurant. If you don't like what goes on the table, we've always got peanut butter. And it's only, the kitchen's only open from such a time to such a time. You cannot come in at 8 o'clock and make your own dinner. No. You're going to come with us as a family. We're going to sit. We're going to talk. We're going to stare at each other. Find out what's important with one another. And then use that time, dads and moms, to introduce the idea of God's love for them and for your family. Think about, how has God blessed us as a family? Relate that to your children so they hear you talk about God when you sit down and when you rise up and when you walk by the way. Use the meal time. Use the bread of life to energize your spiritual life. There are three opportunities every day, at least. I'm encouraging you to use those to your advantage. To say, I can do a little more prayer. I can put in the right kind of music. I can think about the way God's blessed. 
and think the way the Lord has blessed us. Really a wonderful thing to do. Justin, one of our pastors here, has put together a little booklet on fasting. I'm not sure how many are left. It kind of went pretty good first service. We'll make more if you want to. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. And what it means is it's meant to help us spend more time getting to know God. Some people look at fasting as a diet trend. If you fast, wanting to lose weight, it won't work. Okay? I don't want you fasting to lose weight. But if you think about the time in preparation, consuming, cleaning up, and say, that 45 minutes or that one hour, I'm going to dedicate that to my walk and eating the bread of life. A time for prayer, a time for reflection, meditation, a time to memorize the scripture. Now, how often should you fast? Start small. Give up popcorn. Start small and think about how I can spend more of that time with him. The point is not that you end up fasting for three weeks at a time. It doesn't make you super spiritual. But it does mean at some point you put aside living the good life and saying, I'm entitled to this food. So I'm going to replace this meal with my time with God. Now, some of you have diet restrictions. Talk to your doctor. My doctor has always said to me, Ron, if you fast, I will praise God. I go, are you a Christian? He goes, no, I'm not. But he goes, if I would give up a meal, the doctor would be very delighted I would do that. Fasting is an opportunity to do that. You want to know more? little booklet in the back outside in the lobby to do that with. It's simply a tool. It doesn't make you super saint. But it allows you to say, this is how I can begin. Evening meals. Fasting. And using those times with, where we do take the time to refill ourselves Think about refueling ourselves with Jesus. You know, we always think we have to pursue God. If you look at Scripture carefully, we see that God is pursuing us. In the Old Testament, there's a wonderful story about Adam walking with God before the fall. And I, and I love the illustration that God is walking with Adam. He's not running. God's not looking for Adam. He knows where he is. But Adam is walking with God. That's the pace God wants us at, to walk with him. Can you imagine the joy Adam must have had that in that evening he would be with his creator in the cool of the evening, walking? What in the world would Adam have to say? God's listening. Oh God, today I, I saw a hippopotamus and I named him. I ran with a panther today. The excitement of his everyday life in relationship to God. How many times a day do you feel God saved your life? You drive the freeway? That's a four angel experience. The places you go and the things you do, God is there. It's not that important how much you know about God, but how much you know God. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he says, I am the sustainer. I am the one you need to get through it. But so many of us are spiritually starved. We're looking for that special time, that quiet time. 
I'm saying it's built into your life. It's built into your schedule. Use it. Be blessed of God along that line. So if you look in your bulletin, there's actually a handout for today's message. But it does no good until right now. So you didn't miss anything. I'm going to give you the stuff now. In that, I wanted to kind of help you understand what it means to come to know God. Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. It's a personal thing. You can't depend on someone else's faith. This is your walk with God. He knows your name. He wants to be in relationship with you. He does love this church, but he loves us as individuals. He cares about you. And you need to recognize how you can learn to that, let him care for you and love you. You've got to get to know him, his character. To know God both as a God of giving of grace as well as a God of a judge. Knowing God is a matter of personal involvement. It takes effort. Not to find God because he's missing, but the effort to slow down and say, I'm going to change my meal time. Not give it up altogether. You might once in a while when you fast, but it means I'm going to make a point of every meal I have. Maybe the clue will be when I read for the, reach for the pepper shaker. And I want to add that mayonnaise. It doesn't mean you don't do those things. It just means that pepper shaker reminds me to pray. To ask God to be a part of this. It's a, it's a, it's a clue. It reminds you, take time to know God and to pray. So it's personal involvement. And knowing God is, means having an attitude of grace. God wants to be in relationship with you. You don't have to convince him. You don't have to talk him into it. God wants that relationship with you. And yes, you are a sinner. And so am I. But God so loved us, he provided a way to overcome that sin. And that's what's so hard to believe. That he would do that for us. But that's God's character. That's what he means to us. That's what you mean to him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we easily get caught up in the things of this world and forget some of the simple things. A simple meal. A simple meal, Father, consisting mostly of bread. That's what you said you are. You are the bread of life. Lord, we want that bread to multiply in our lives and in our mouth and in the things that we do so that we might not take for granted the food that we have. As we sit at our tables, as we sit with our family, as we sit with our children, Father, help us to make those attempts to make it more meaningful. Dinner may be hectic, lunches could be crazy, and breakfast may be non-existent. But Father, we can make an effort. We can make an effort to make it a little bit different. And if nothing else, Father, to put our elbows on our counter in our kitchen and say, today, Lord, feed me. Today, Lord, walk with me. Today, Lord, I want this. Father, give us this day our daily bread. We need it every day, every single day. Thank you for the opportunities you've built into our life to do that. Now we may take advantage of it. Thank you, Father, for loving us 
and being our bread, the bread of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.